Hey, how are you? Hey, I am. I'm hanging in there. It's been one crazy week. Shelly had eye surgery the other day, uh, which went great. That was just to repair some cataracts. She's very, very young for cataracts, but there they are, or there they were. Uh, so one eye has been done. Next month, we'll do the next one, and she will have vision like never before. So we, yeah, so I'm super excited for her, but man, it was like yet another thing to fit into our crazy, busy lives and funny how it just like, okay, I guess we're creating time for that now. Ah, that's an important one. You kind of got to create time for that one. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So yeah, but we're doing pretty good. How are you? I am doing great. Today is my oldest child's 16th birthday. Hey, uh, so, happy yeah, birthday. We started the day off with presents and then uh, we're picking him up from school a little bit early. He's scheduled to take his driver's test. Yeah. And I am retiring my taxi cab driver's hat <laughs> later on today. Uh, not really, but uh, it will change pretty dramatically. The number of things I have to drive people to and from. It's just one of those major shifts in a family culture when somebody else gets a license for the first time. Oh, uh, and so I'm super interested in watching how this all turns out. Yeah, it was fun. We actually had two cars at the DMV when my oldest got his license. And again, we pulled him out of school that day and he did his thing and we took him out to lunch to celebrate. And we just tossed him to the keys to the other car. And we drove, nice. Shelly and I drove in one car over to the restaurant and we're like, here, just meet us over there. And he's like, what? Oh, oh, okay. It was it was super fun. That's so fun. Yeah, I'm super excited about that. But uh, you ready to dive into the next chapter of Miroslav Volf here? Oh, man. I am so ready because this has been, I think, one of my favorite things that we've done on the podcast is just go through this book together. It has been so rich and so good. I'm glad we're doing it, and I can't wait to do the next one. Yeah, no, I'm I am absolutely loving it. You know, the thing I love about going through a book in this format is that I know there's a wide range of folks, right? Like there's the person who can't read the book and is just listening to the episodes. And I've been in those shoes before and I love when somebody just gives me the information. Right. And on the flip side, Whenever I dig in hard into a book, I get so much more out of it. You remember the very first book we ever read together? Yes. I was actually thinking about revisiting it and asking you if you wanted to do it on the podcast someday. But yeah, it was Bonhoeffer. Yes, it was. And I was just looking. I still have my print copy that I highlighted 20 years ago or whatever. Like It would be a fascinating book to come back to. Because it was life-changing for me when we read it. It inserted a series of thoughts about what it means to work out our salvation. And I could talk about that forever, and I'm bunny trailing here. So <laughs> let me reel myself back in and ask you about your first impressions of this chapter, Truth and Deception. I thought this was a really fascinating chapter because for me— 
it highlighted the extremes, both sides of an equation that I think our society tends to amplify and struggle with. So on the one hand, I I think in society's terms, you hear this phrase used a lot, speak truth to power. And it's a Mm -hmm. way of challenging the dominant narrative by saying, no, you're missing it, or you're we just talked about this before we started recording. You're obfuscating it. Um, <laughs> and so you're you're smoothing over the differences in order to paint a grand narrative. And that narrative is incomplete or it is just completely wrong. And so those who challenge that grand narrative are speaking truth to power. And it's very emboldening, right? And so we hear that on the one side. But then we also have a really dominant strain in our society that what is true for you is true for you, but what is true for me is true for me. And everybody's truth is okay. And everybody's truth is equal, and there can be no judgment among them. And so the problem is you can't have it both ways. You have this tension between speaking a true narrative, and then you have the rest of society saying, no, everything is true for everybody. So I think Wolf is kind of wrestling through these two sides of the coin and saying, okay, what is truth? What really is it? How do we deal with it? How does truth and deception play out in our societal narratives and our clashes among people? And what do we really do with it? And I think these are really powerful questions that really are relevant to our society today. Yeah, absolutely. I called you halfway through the chapter because I was not following it. Like I was just frustrated with him. And it's because once again, he is doing what he consistently does in each chapter, which is he's very willingly giving, at least to my mind, each side of that argument a reasonable hearing. And it just took me a while to figure out why, like, okay, why are you telling me all of this? And I loved the third place he offered us to stand. I thought it was fascinating just from a social point of view as an option that actually is helpful. And Mm -hmm. I actually used it last night. Uh, So I have a fun story about that. And then I also thought his theological underpinnings of it were really, really interesting. So I'm excited to get to his proposal, but it seems like we should talk about the two alternatives he is not content with first. Does that seem accurate to you? Yeah, it does. And I'm equally excited to get to his proposal because as I took notes and as I wrote my outline here, I have thousands of stars around like, oh, make sure to talk about this. Oh, make sure to mention this. Oh, this was gold. So like, yeah, I have a lot to say when we get to that section. But yeah, I have literally, I started... The quotes were so big in this section that I wanted to talk about. I started inserting pictures of the text into (laughs) my typed notes because I didn't want to miss certain things that he said because he said them so well. Oh, my goodness. That's awesome. Um, Okay, well, let's start then where he starts, which is this need to remember And I really appreciated the fact that we do need to remember. And he starts with a really powerful analogy of why. He starts with quoting Elie Wiesel or Elie Wiesel. I don't speak German, so. No idea. 
At any rate, most people will be familiar with that name, but Elie Wiesel was a survivor of the Holocaust, and he went on to be a writer and speaker and thinker who addressed issues surrounding the Holocaust. And he gives this quote from Wiesel, justice without memory is an incomplete justice, false and unjust. To forget would be an absolute injustice in the same way that Auschwitz was the absolute crime. To forget would be the enemy's final triumph. We cannot forget the injustices that have happened in the world. And I think we even adopt this here in the United States, right? When we look at 9-11, what's the tagline for 9-11? Never forget. And we have these historical references in our country. Remember the Lusitania. Remember the Alamo. All of these things that are calling on a people to never forget. And that's an important thing about memory and about speaking truth, Well, and I appreciated his coming back to this idea of memory because he made a significant argument in an earlier chapter that part of embrace is an intentional act of forgetting. And here he makes the seemingly opposite point that an essential part of justice is remembering. And so I was grateful that he ultimately came to, you need to remember But what matters is not just what you remember, but how you remember it and what you do with that memory. I was just grateful that he was willing to nuance this point in his own thinking. Memory can lead us towards grace or justice, or memory can lead us towards anger and bitterness. Memory can lead us in a lot of different directions. It is not the thing controlling us. It is a piece of who we are, a tool that we use, but we need to constrain it to our own values. Yeah, it is morally neutral. Yes, exactly. Well, I guess the idea of memory is morally neutral, and we can do with it what we choose. But... There is a deceptiveness about memory, which I think is really important, and I'm glad he brings up, and that is that we consider our memory to be accurate, and the Mm. way we interpret it is accurate. That's not always true, because as he points out, everything needs a narrative in order for us to make sense of it. We are story-making people. And so we can take facts, figures, dates, events, and around that, we build this narrative that is, at best, mostly true. And it's all culturally conditioned. And so we have to be careful with our memory just as much as it is, quote-unquote, morally neutral. Yeah, absolutely. It is morally neutral in the sense that we have to choose what to do with it. However, it is conditioned by our pre-existing morals. And I think this is a quote from much later in the chapter, but I texted you this quote yesterday when I was reading because I just find it fascinating. We've all known people for whom this is true. He says, in his famous comment on pride and memory, Nietzsche expresses the thought unforgettably. I have done that, says my memory. I cannot have done that, says my pride and remains inexorable. 
eventually memory yields. Yeah. I love that point that our ego or our pride transforms our memories. And every one of us can point to other people for whom we are confident this is true. But Wolf's challenge is for us to look in the mirror and acknowledge that our memories are conditioned by our pride. Our memories are impacted by our existing values and narrative that we're telling ourselves. That's important for us to hold on to. It is. And Wolf puts it this way, which I think is just nice and plain and easy to grasp. We remember what we want to remember because we know what we choose to know. And that falls in line with our pride. Like whatever we choose to know, that's what we know. And second, as we said before, we do with our memories what we want to do with them because they themselves do not dictate what ought to be done with them. There is a lot of choice in both what we remember, how we remember it, and what we do with it. And the postmodern approach then is to say, okay, well, then all truth is relative. So what's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. And we all go about our ways and we can't judge between us. So he, well, he fictitiously proposes the, a postmodern person giving a toast saying, to the truth of each community and to the truth of each little name. Every little fiefdom, every little person gets their own little kingdom of truth, and we're just going to salute that. And Wolf goes on to critique that point of view, which I appreciate because that needs a genuine critique. Yeah, I thought what he had to say, based on the work of uh, Foucault on truth, was really, really interesting. You know, he develops the postmodern idea of truth far beyond what I typically think of it. I have a straw man in my head that I am thinking about all the time about what, you know, if I'm being honest, what those people say about truth and relativism. Mm -hmm. And he started to talk a lot more about two things that I just thought were really important. First of all, this idea that Truth is produced by a power in order to wield that power. In other words, truth is a socially constructed idea that is constructed by those in power to maintain their power. Yeah. I thought that was super interesting as well, especially when at the end of the chapter, what he's going to do is he's going to analyze the scene where Jesus and Pilate are talking. And Pilate very mockingly, just dismissively says, well, what is truth? And he seems to be saying that Michel Foucault and Pilate have a very similar understanding of truth. Truth is whatever passes for truth. And if people believe it, then that is true and that is power and that is all I care about. Yeah. I love that exact same phrase. Truth is what passes for true, right? Yeah. You know, because he he goes on to say, that not only is there this sort of idea that power constructs truth, but beyond that, any other truth is fundamentally inaccessible to us. It doesn't even matter. And so Foucault's role as a philosopher isn't even to engage with some abstraction called truth. 
because it either doesn't exist or it, it is inaccessible. But I loved his criticisms of that. And I don't know if you have this experience, but whenever he mentions an author that I have engaged with, I feel like I get a gold star for having read a good author. Oh my gosh. Every time he references anything related to Zuziulis's thought, I'm like, yeah, I read him. Um, so yes, and that's yes. going to come up later in this chapter. So yeah. So he mentions in this moment, he mentions Charles Taylor. I recently finished James K.A. Smith's book on Taylor and loved it. But one of the things he says that he quotes Taylor as saying about this is uh, if all truth is an imposition, that is to say, if power is constructing truth, no change can be a gain. Yes, that I highlighted the same thing. Yeah, I thought this was a great point. And so then he calls this a complacent relativism. Why bother changing anything if everything is just a construct? What is to say that somebody else is righter or wronger? Why bother? It's all just a construct. So the prevailing construct is fine. Yeah. I love the way that Taylor put it. It's so simple and so profound at the same time. If all truth is just an imposition, it's just a power play, it's just a grand narrative that somebody constructed. If that's all truth is, then it could never be a gain or better to do anything other than that. The next truth in line is just the same thing in a different form. Uh, with no way to rank it as better than the other one or worse than the other one, because there's no outside standard by which to judge whether or not this was better than the other. Yeah, exactly. But because our world operates this way, and it seems like there is so much deception out there, uh, there's so, so many fuzzy lines around what is true. I was really struck by a quote here on page 239, and I'm going to read this. But as I do, I realize that we as Christians fall into this trap. We swim in this sea of deception, as he says. And as we do, we have to figure out how to navigate it. And I think, to borrow something he used in another chapter, sometimes I think we fall prey to playing by the dominant rules and just playing the game as it's been taught to us, rather than playing by Christ's rules. And so that's what was on my mind as I read this. So let me just read it real quick. We swim in an ocean of distortions and deceptions, and the truth seems impotent to sustain us. You trust the power of truth because the, quote, truth of power proves stronger. That iron fist in a velvet glove of statistics, research results, pronouncements by undisputed authorities, of appeals to tradition or common sense. The only sensible thing seems to return in kind, to define your own truth and assert it in the face of your opponents with the help of intimidation, propaganda, and manipulation. And I feel like this is what we are often reduced to as Christians. We often play by the world's game. And we feel like we have to defend our truth or defend the truth of the gospel louder, with more intimidation, with more propaganda, manipulation. We have to legislate this into being, or we have to just force our hands somehow. 
Not that every Christian response defending the gospel falls into this category. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I think we often play by these quote-unquote rules without realizing that that's not the way our Savior played the game. Absolutely. So often we do exactly what the world does. We sloganize and shout. Yeah. This is a great point. And I, I really didn't land on this point particularly hard when he said it, so I'm glad you brought it up. We have bought into the way of thinking that, what did you call it? The sea of deception? Yeah. Yeah. We are living and and breathing and swimming in this sea of deception. Meanwhile, criticizing everybody around us for the ways in which they are giving into it, as if that criticism is a way of proving that we are not giving into it. When by the very mm. act of criticism itself, we are actually participating in the same system. Yeah. That's a great point. I am so glad he offers an alternative. And <laughs> right, I think it's exactly. a brilliant one. Are you ready to jump into his alternative? Because I think it's simple and profound all at the same time. It is. I have so much to say and talk about here because this is life-changing if we really lean into it. I agree. I want to start just very briefly with his recording of Thomas Nagel's alternative proposal, only because I think that it gives good grounding for where he's going to go instead. Nagel proposes that we need to see the world from what he calls no point of view by stepping out of ourselves. In other words, we leave our own vantage point behind and try to see the world uh, what I would call objectively. Mm -hmm. This, of course, sadly, harkens back to some of the things Wolf has said earlier about the modern view of history and our attempt to stand in an objective, sort of godlike place. And that ultimately falls apart. And so Wolf offers an alternative. And, and I will let you jump in. Yeah. So as you said, Nagel proposes that we step out of ourselves. We try to see the world objectively and, quote, stand from nowhere. But that's impossible. We can't do that. And he says this, the way I would put it, is through an old phrase that I don't hear used too much anymore, but it's ironically true. Wherever you go, there you are. Like you take yourself with you wherever you go. You can't like detach from yourself and view the world objectively. You still bring yourself to that place. And so you are still culturally conditioned. You still have your own worldview, your own perspective that you're seeing the world through. So that's just a false assumption that we could step out of ourselves and, and see the world objectively. Instead, Wolf returns to this idea of double vision. And he says, we don't need to see from our perspective and from nowhere. We need to see from our perspective and from their perspective. We need to see from here and we need to see from there. He's saying, no, we, we need to acknowledge our position in the world. And we need to acknowledge the position in the world that the other maintains. And we need to do what we can to see from both our eyes and theirs. Yes. And for the very first time in the entire book, Wolf offers us a solution in four easy steps. 
<laughs> he does. Yes, you're right. I, I'm so excited. You know, like we can print this on a postcard and throw the rest of the book out and it'll be fine. Um, well, that's right. Okay. So that's our... <laughs> That's our tendency, right? We want, okay, just give me the four steps. Like, I'll just like, can we boil down all of this theology and philosophy and difficult sledding into just four easy steps? Can we just do that? But we lose so much of the richness if that's all we do. Yeah, I totally agree. I do appreciate the fact that he breaks this down. And this isn't really the first time he did this in his like, how to do an embrace thing earlier. But I appreciated in this moment his steps because they acknowledge the fact that this is sort of a cyclical process. And so he begins with this idea that we simply need to step outside ourselves. And I love this quote. I'm curious if you highlighted this as well. He says, we examine what we consider to be the plain verities about others, willing to entertain the idea that these quote-unquote verities may be but so many ugly prejudices, bitter fruits of our imaginary fears, or our sinister desires to dominate or exclude. We also observe our own image of ourselves, willing to detect layers of self-deceit that tell us exalted stories about ourselves and our history. To step outside means to distance ourselves for a moment from what is inside. And this is the most important part. Ready for a surprise. Hmm. That was so rich. That is all I have to say about that. Because <laughs> I just think he captured it so beautifully that there is judgment and prejudice and we are telling exalted stories about ourselves. And if we don't notice it, it doesn't mean it's not there. It means we're not self-aware. And yeah. so we have to be ready for a surprise. Well, I would like to file a lawsuit for false advertising because you claimed that these were four easy steps. <laughs> and that was step one, and it doesn't sound very easy. Yeah, you make a point. It is not an easy step. It is a lifestyle practice that... I find very difficult. As a matter of fact, if I can jump in here with a story for a moment, I told you I had an experience of this just last night. In Missouri, in order to get your license, you have to have a driving log of 40 hours. And this is an absurdly unimportant moment. But my son was finishing filling out his log because we're going to get his license today. And he filled out everything but the name of the supervising driver. And, <laughs> and each line, all 40 lines, requires the name of a, a supervising driver. And he hands it to me and is like, all right, fill out your name. I'm like, it's not a signature. I don't have to fill out my name. That is your form. Fill it out. And he said, it's not my name. You fill it out. And this, because we are both wildly stubborn people, escalated <laughs> To the point of me saying something to the effect of, look, fill out the form or I'm not taking you to get your license tomorrow. And him walking away saying, fine, then I'm not getting my license tomorrow. <laughs> right? Like this is everyday life with stupid people. By which, in case anybody was wondering, I mean myself, not my son. Um, just 
absurd. And then I literally go from having that conversation right into reading this section of oh, this no. chapter. Like <laughs> straight into reading the quote that I read a moment ago about my ugly prejudices, bitter fruits of our imaginary fears, and the exalted stories we tell about ourselves. Oh, no. Like, and so I took a moment. I knew the general idea of the chapter. I called him back and said, hey, I'm reading this book. And in short, it tells me that my job in these kind of moments is to try to see myself from your point of view and yourself from your point of view. And so I would like to just take a moment and do that. Because we just mutually escalated what is a very small deal into a very absurdly large deal. And so I paused and just said, how, how did I just come across to you? And he said, you were really rude. And before I had said anything, you just were super rude to me. And if I were that rude to you, you would correct me. Mm. And this is not the exalted narrative I was telling about myself, by the way, just to be clear. Um, <laughs> You know, and I asked him what was important to him in this situation, and he's like, first of all, it wasn't that important, but it's your name. Just write your name down. Like, why is this complicated? We had probably about a thirty-minute conversation, but we kept veering off into me defending my point of view and him defending his point of view. Yeah, and had to keep bringing ourselves back to this idea of double vision and stepping outside of ourselves. And it was so hard. And we have a lot of history and we really respect one another and we like each other. And yeah. to be quite honest, like when people say, man, those teenagers years were so hard. So far, my response is a sort of quiet, huh, that's not been my experience. I think we're having a blast. Right. So it's not like right. we have built up aggravation or whatever. It's just so hard. It is. I love your story. Thank you for sharing. I think it, it illustrates this so well, because we have so much good content to get to about the character required to do this work and the difficulty involved in it. And so we can come back to that. But I want to just complete the loop here. He says there are four steps, and you illustrated you know, stepping outside of ourselves, but you really illustrated all four of these, because he says, step one, step out of, outside of yourself. Step two, cross a social boundary and move into the world of the other. And three, take the other into our world. And four, as you illustrated, repeat. Mm -hmm. So step outside of ourselves, then just walk all the way to where the other is, try to see the world from their perspective, then take that perspective into yourself. And then, oh, by the way, repeat because you're, it's not done yet. Uh, you guys had to do this multiple times over. And so I really like what Wolf says, because you talked about this being a real life scenario. And that is what Wolf says about real life. We're forced to act and respond in the world before this work can ever be completely done. Because we have not fully come to an understanding as mutual humans, even members of our own family. And we still have to act. We still had to figure out how this form was going to get filled out in your case. How do we show up to those moments when the work is incomplete? 
What kind of character can we bring to those moments that will help that work go well in the midst of a conflict situation? Yeah, I loved what he said. And did you catch this quote from Stanley Hauer? Hauerwas? Hauerwas? How would you say that last name? Again, with the W's in German, like, I don't know, like, depends on how accurate you want to be. I don't know. Amazing, amazing theology guy. But this argument that truth requires a truthful life, which is, I think, the point that you're getting at here, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Our ability to step back from our own deceptions is dependent on the dominant story, the master image that we have embodied in our character. It felt to me like his way of talking about what Wolf called the decentered center earlier on in the book. The idea that the crucified, the self-giving, self-donating love of the crucified, if that's the center of our lives, we are empowered to do this kind of double vision work in a whole different way than if truth or purity or justice are the center of our lives. Mm, yes. Wow. That is so powerful because I do think, again, going back to the way that we as Christians commonly engage with the world, I think sometimes we have this perspective that truth is at the center of our lives. We have said mm -hmm. Jesus is the truth, and therefore the truth is at the center of our lives. But what Wolf is pushing us to is say, no, Christ is the center of our lives. And he goes on later in this chapter to talk about the idea of witnessing, and that even Jesus was just witnessing to the truth. He was testifying to it. He was pointing to it, because that's the job of a good witness, was to point to the truth. Because he even cites verses where Jesus says, yeah, it's I only do what my father tells me to do. I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. I'm saying what my father told me to say. I'm doing that. So he's pointing. And he's saying, if Jesus is at the center of our lives, this self-giving crucified Messiah, we engage with the world through his perspective and his willingness to point to the truth, not say that we own the truth and it is at the center of our lives and everybody has to get on board with our truth, our version of it, in order to be right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and he has... And I wish we had like another hour, but he has so many things to say towards the end of the chapter about what the idea of truth really is that I found absolutely fascinating. But one that he grounds in the Old Testament that I simply hadn't heard before was this idea that truth in the biblical worldview has the idea of reliability built into it. Yeah. And I just found this to unify his need for truth with this idea of the character of truth in a really practical way. Some of these folks, you know, if you think of some of the loudest and most obnoxious proponents of truth, they are not people on whom I would want to rely. Hmm. But somebody who has the character of Jesus whose life is marked by self-donating love, people who emulate the crucifixion in their daily lives, that is a truth I can depend on. Yeah, he really 
hammers home the point that it takes a truthful life to seek the truth and to speak the truth. You have to be a person of the truth, which I really loved. He pulls in this passage from Ephesians, which is often translated, speak the truth in love. And he says, that's not actually how the Greek reads. The Greek has nothing to do with the word speaking truth. It actually just says, literally translated, truthing in love. And truthing is a much more encompassing idea than just speaking. Yes, speaking is involved in that, but this is literally living a life of truth in love. And he really emphasizes this idea that you have to have both, because if you really want the truth, you have to be willing or you have to genuinely desire to use truth rightly, i.e. use truth in love in order to actually discover it, in order to actually live into it. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I loved that idea of living the truth or truthing. You're right. That's so much more comprehensive. And it it is narrowing our idea of truth even to use the phrase speak the truth, and which is his whole point. We are so quick to limit truth to the words rather than to the character of the person. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't want to miss out on this. We are getting towards the end here, but I want to hear if you had any big thoughts about the pilot section, because I thought that was a really interesting and profound capturing of so many things that he was talking about in this chapter in one biblical story. So what struck you about that story? I think what struck me is kind of what we've been alluding to this whole time, or what I've been kind of referencing, is our tendency as Christians to play by the world's rules around truth-telling. And Jesus very clearly sets himself apart from Pilate's power struggle. Pilate doesn't even wait around for an answer. He just says, yeah, what is truth? And the conversation drops from there. Again, this idea that Pilate was only concerned about the power of truth, not truth itself. And the Pharisees themselves were also concerned with the power of truth, not truth itself, because they put on a mock trial, a sham indictment. You know, when Pilate asked them, what did he do? And like, well, of course he's guilty. We brought him to you. So just charge him already. So they didn't care about the truth. Pilate didn't care about the truth. Both groups were just concerned with preserving their own power. And Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus points to the truth and is willing to die while witnessing to the truth rather than engage in some power struggle over what is true and what isn't. Jesus donates himself for the cause of truth without shouting down Pilate or shouting down the Pharisees or calling condemnation down on them or any of those things. He just pointed to the truth and was willing to die for it. That is powerful. Absolutely. What if this was our model for public discourse? How would that change things? That's the question that comes to mind when I listen to you reflecting on it. As I watch and engage in public discourse, this is going to now be the passage I come back to. 
to let Jesus disciple me on how to have a conversation about anything that is important, anything that is about truth, anything that is about justice. This is my model, which makes me think I have a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. So to bring it back around to where we started with society's two statements, one, speak truth to power, and two, all truths are equal and everybody's truth is their own truth. Wolf really kind of comes down and says, no, it's true. We cannot understand the truth fully and rightly, but we can witness to the truth. We can point to the truth. We can still be culturally situated and point adamantly to the truth. And it might be dangerous to witness to that truth in the face of power, yes, but it is not as though we are bringing truth to power. We are witnessing to the truth. And that may mean we have to die for it. And that is mm-hmm. okay. We're not going to engage in the world's power struggle over truth. We are simply going to witness. That's it, exactly. And uh, if I can take this moment now to turn towards the audience and really say two things. First of all, if you are really enjoying this conversation, we would love to have you share this uh, with somebody else and have a conversation about our conversation with somebody else. We would love to have that. And then for you to engage in the conversation with us as well, comment on our posts on social media. Let us know what struck you about Wolf's writing or about what we have said today, about what this has to do with your life. We are so fascinated by these ideas and really excited to have them enriched by the way you are coming at them. So we are excited that you're on this journey with us. And really, just about every week we get messages, texts, emails from people who are listening along with us. And that's super exciting to us just to hear what this material is doing in your mind and heart. So please let us know. We're excited to hear. Yeah, we absolutely love hearing from you. And so once again, I feel like Wolf's thoughts were so good and so rich that we didn't want to stop engaging with Wolf's thoughts in order to engage with some other side thing that we've been thinking about this week. So Josh from Missouri, if you don't mind, I would love to just, for the sake of time, skip over our individual thoughts and move straight into the most embarrassing segment of our show. Well, bum here we go, ladies and gentlemen. This week's Witch Josh is Witch Josh always typos the phrase Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So that is totally me. And I'll tell you what, to go all the way through seminary with this being true, it happened a lot. Uh-huh. Every paper, like, I don't know that every paper had the Holy Spirit in it, at least in print, but- Probably since you wrote them a lot, didn't. Oh, ouch. That was a Pentecostal bashing a Baptist. That was harsh. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yes, the whole weight of my denomination just landed hard on you. It really did. It really did. Um, I think you guys still believe in repentance, though, so you can go take care of that. But- for So for me, every time I type the Holy Spirit 
I add a Y on the end of it. And I have no idea why, but every time I type the Holy Spirit, it comes out Holy Spirity. And it makes me giggle when I do it. And I don't mean to do it. And I always have to back it out. And I'd say to myself, Oh, Holy Spirity. And that's it. You're so Holy Spirity. I'm really not, but that is what I type. So there you go. Oh, man. Well, the good news is you are now in a different master's program. And so while I am confident that the Holy Spirit will actively be at work in all that you are doing there, I suspect you will write the phrase Holy Spirit less often. Right. I agree. Which inexperience isn't going to help me correct this problem, but... Neither did experience, so. Some problems, you just acknowledge they are what they are, and you need to go into the like autocorrect and create an autocorrect rule for yourself. I was in seminary for four and a half years, and I never once thought to do that. Why didn't we have this conversation sooner? (laughs) I guess I should have picked this which Josh question earlier. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay. Episode over. All right. Well, are we on for next week for more of Miroslav Volf? I'm looking forward to that for sure. All right. I'll talk to you then. All right. Bye. Bye. What?